0: This is the Game Dev Field Guide bonus episode number 16. Today's special guest, X Comp Wiz. This episode of the Game Dev Field Guide is sponsored by our community patrons. Everyone gets the episode for free, and it's all thanks to the generosity of the patrons. In addition to supporting a third episode every month, and just in general supporting the show, if you become a patron, you also get to vote on episode topics. I'll leave a link for that in the show notes if that interests you. Also, I'd like to mention that we do have a community Discord, and And it is currently around 960 members, which is crazy. I remember the days a long time ago, it feels like now, uh, where it was like a dozen of us just talking about games and stuff. And it's kind of retained that same, uh, I don't know, small community feel, despite us growing so much. So yeah, it's a great place for beginner to intermediate devs. If you're looking for a place to hang out and talk about game dev and share tips, and maybe learn some tips from other people, you should definitely go check it out. I will leave a link to it in the show notes. With the intro out of the way, let's move on over to our first segment of the show. The first segment of bonus episodes is almost always our game Buff Debuff. It's a game where listeners suggest sort of one-word topics or one-phrase topics, and I don't really do any research, I just go off of the top of my head and say whether or not I think the thing in question is buffed or debuffed. Buff would be something that I think is trending in the positive, is something that's good, or something that I like. And debuffed is something that's trending negatively, or something that I just don't really think works that well. So yeah, without further ado, let's start buff-debuff. Let's start with the first topic, which is diegetic UI. If you don't know what diegetic UI is, it's sort of the idea that the UI is presented to the player in the context of the world. Think of like, instead of having a heads-up display that is in the corners of the screen, or a health bar that's in the top left of the screen or something like that, it's actually displayed in the world of the game in some way. One of my favorite examples of diegetic UI comes from the game Dead Space, where the health bar, the ammo, the reticle, all of that stuff is displayed either on the character's weapon or suit. So yeah, if you can't tell, I think diegetic UI is buffed. I actually used it in my game Bound Shot, which is now out on Steam. Although I think it is buffed, it does have some sort of traps, I guess, to be wary of. In Bounce Shot, for instance, the time remaining for the level and the health of the player is displayed on a little, I don't know, I guess you could call it like a smartwatch. And it's shown on the forearm of the player character. It's sort of a FPS controller, you know, with the gun up in the lower third of the screen. And on the left arm, there's a smartwatch with the time and health. What I found though is that some people just didn't like reading the UI like this because it's on the forearm it's sort of at a diagonal angle and it can be awkward for instance when you're performing a melee attack and you bend your forearm up it can be awkward to try and read what is on the screen. So what I went ahead and did was just put a normal UI uh, with the timer and the life up in the top corners of the screen. So now you have the best of both worlds, in my opinion. You can glance at your watch because it's going to be closer to the reticle to check the time or your health. And if for some reason that's too difficult to read, you can glance in the top corners of the screen for a more traditional UI, I guess. So yeah, I think the moral of the story is diegetic UI is buffed so long as it doesn't get in the way of the player figuring out whatever information they need, and it would be nice to have options for the player to maybe customize how the UI looks because I think diegetic UI is something that everybody has different preferences with. So yeah, diegetic UI is buffed. In a similar vein, the next topic is minimaps and whether or not they are buffed or debuffed. I think mini-maps are probably buffed, but they have to be used in the right situations. By that, I mean mini-maps, I think, have to give you additional situational awareness. They can't just be the map alone. I think if the minimap is just the map alone without icons or context clues or additional information on spatial awareness. I think if it doesn't have that stuff, then really all it is is clutter on the screen. Hopefully your player will be playing the game enough for they'll have their own mini-map inside their head. Like, if you play a popular FPS game, there are many, let's just talk about Call of Duty I guess. The mini-map for figuring out where to go for those purposes is kind of useless because you've probably played enough of the map that you have your own mental map of what the level is like. What you use the minimap for is the extra situational awareness. You use the minimap to find out where the enemies are, right? When they other people shoot a unsuppressed gun, then a red dot shows up on the minimap. And that in my opinion from a game design standpoint is where the value of the minimap is. Maybe for first-time players you can say, well, it helps show them where they're going. But I think that's a really small thing that doesn't outweigh the clutter on the screen. And uh, I don't know, I just don't think that's where the value is in a mini-map. So yeah, I would say mini-maps are buffed so long as you're using them for situational awareness. Okay, our next topic is OOP versus ECS uh, programming. I think OOP is object-oriented programming, and ECS, I have no idea what that is. Um, I th- well, I kind of know what it is, and by kind of, I mean I don't really <laughs> know what it is. I think, um, like, I've heard people talking about Unity moving to a system called DOTS, and I think that is different than what they have now, which is an object-oriented programming design, I guess. But yeah, like I said, in buff-debuff, I don't do any research. And so for these two terms, I mean, take my buff and debuff with a huge grain of salt. I would say for me, I guess I prefer object-oriented programming uh, because that's just what I know. And if you've ever tuned into a game dev stream, you can see that even that I have a tenuous grasp of the principles of. So <laughs> yeah, OOP is buffed and ECS is debuffed, I guess. Next, we have Interactive Fiction Games. I'm guessing by this that the poster meant, um, like, text-based adventures and maybe, like, the the choose-your-own-adventure-style games. I would say that these are probably slightly debuffed. Not because I don't think they're cool or not because I don't think they're, like, worthy of making. I just think it's a hyper-niche game that actually, surprisingly, requires a lot of narrative work. And yeah, it's just kind of... I don't know, like, I acknowledge that it is part of game dev, but it ignores, uh, like, graphics and special effects and all that stuff that I think if you spent a lot of your time doing, like, you would probably get really good at the narrative design of games, which is the visual art side of things. But I don't think you have to, now that I think of it, because I have seen games um, have, like, this interactive fiction, this choose-your-own-adventure-book-style thing. And they'll actually will do art with the, I think it's pronounced ASCII format. This is kind of where you use, like, the standard keyboard characters to actually draw art on the screen. So, yeah, maybe I take that back. Maybe if you're doing it that way, then you are focusing on the visual art side of game dev. But still, I think it's a lot of work. It's probably really clunky to make a game like this and it's a lot of narrative design work. So unless this is something you really, really want to do, this is something that like fits your artistic urge to create and you have to make it, um, I think it's buffed and I, I personally probably would not make a game in the interactive fiction genre. The next topic is unit tests in your solo dev project. And again, this like advanced programming stuff. And I'm sure if you are a programmer, you probably look at unit tests and you don't even see them as advanced. You're probably like, that's just part of my job. But for people who don't come from a programming background, I'm thinking unit tests are probably not even something on their radar. And as I understand it, and I have a very basic understanding, but I think you would use unit tests to test methods in your code to see if they're even going to work before you, I don't know, try to compile the code. I don't know if I used the right technical terms there but basically it's a better way, a more advanced way, of catching and fixing bugs in your code. For me personally, with Unity at least, I've never once had to use them and I've made a lot of games. And that kind of goes with my entire stance on programming in game dev. I see programming as a means to an end, and as long as it works, like, I'm cool with it. As long as it works and it's not too hard to deal with. So yeah, sometimes I write a lot of really, I don't know, I guess you could call it sloppy or inefficient code. But if it works, it works. And at the end of the day, a lot of players aren't going to care if it's inefficient or not perfect code. So, yeah, I think a lot of the time and energy you could put into writing perfect code and, like, designing all that. Um, If you just moved fast and maybe you didn't write the best code, but you were able to test out, uh, maybe you got an extra hour back and tested out a few more game mechanics and got the feel for them right uh, I don't know I just think your time is better spent on things that the player will know is there if that makes sense like obviously your code has to work so you have to write good enough code so the player doesn't see the bugs but at the end of the day the reason I do game dev is for game design I love doing the game design and so spending all this time writing things like unit tests or doing more advanced programming. uh, To me, even if it was easier in the long run, I don't know, I just think it would be time spent doing something that I already see as just the part of game dev that I don't really love. So yeah, for that, I think unit tests would be debuffed for me personally. But of course, I think this is one of those topics where it's a very personal thing. Like maybe some people get a lot of enjoyment out of writing like perfectly clean and good looking code. In the same way that if you're an artist who feels like you need to write an interactive fiction game, um, if you're a programmer who feels like you need to have really nice code, like that fits your desire to create something, then yeah, by all means, write a ton of unit tests. But for the average game dev, I think it's something that is definitely not required uh, to complete a game. So yeah, unit tests slightly debuffed. And our last topic today is selling a game in early access to later charge for a higher price. Is that buffed or debuffed? To me, this is 100% a buff. This is a rare case where you're benefiting not only the developer, but also the consumer. By selling a game in early access for a reduced price, you're reducing the risk for the consumer, right? If they really hate it or if it really is broken, they're losing less money. And as a dev, you still get to partway through your project, uh, get some funding to continue and improve your project. So yeah, early access discounts, I guess we'll call them, are absolutely buffed. And when I eventually, I'm sure at some point in my career, I will do an early access release, I will definitely be following along with this monetization strategy, I guess. The thing where I think it gets a little bit hairy is like well, can you sell DLC or microtransactions during an early access period? And that to me is kind of like on a case-by-case basis, right? I suppose it depends on the value that the consumer gets for buying DLC or the microtransactions that are being offered during the early access period. But yeah, in general, I always try to, when I think of the monetization strategies, I try to think of things that benefit both sides right the pro consumer uh, but not at the expense of like ruining your own business and so if you could construct a DLC uh, or microtransaction system that would kind of do that then yeah I think it would be good but that takes a lot of thought and planning uh, for something that's only going to be a temporary state of your game. So I can see why most companies don't do that and they just do the normal default DLC and microtransactions because it's just another way for them to make money. So yeah, I guess to sum it up, early access uh, discounts I think are a 100% no doubt buff. DLC and microtransactions, although this poster didn't ask about that, but I think it's related. Uh, Anyways, doing those two things during the early access period... I think uh, requires a lot of thought and planning, and uh, yeah, that's something you would just have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. So yeah, with that, we're gonna end the first segment of the show, and that actually has me caught up with all of the buff debuff topics uh, to date in the channel on our community Discord. So I will need new buff debuff topics. If you have one that you want to hear, just go on over to our community Discord. There's a link in the show notes. There is a Buff Debuff channel, and uh, yeah, just post whatever you want to hear about, and you'll probably hear it in the next episode or the next bonus episode. With that, we're going to move on over to the second segment of the show. For the second segment, I always have a guest give a sort of keynote or a really focused talk on a specific topic. And today we have one that's really interesting that I think everyone can get some value out of. On the surface you're probably thinking, oh this is going to be like a highly technical one that maybe doesn't apply to me as a beginning game dev or more art-focused game dev. But trust me, our guest today does a really good job of breaking everything down and I promise you will walk away from this with a better understanding of DevOps and at the very least a notion and maybe a basic guidance on what you should be doing for version control and actually building your games. So yeah, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, XComp Wiz.
1: Hello! Thanks for having me. I'll start with a quick introduction of myself. Hi, I'm Zach Laster, known online as XCOMPWIZ. I'm probably best known as the creator of Mistcraft, the mist mod for Minecraft. These days, I'm a game dev consultant, meaning I do contract and prototyping work for other companies. Mostly game studios, but I've also done work for the main library of Helsinki, Finland, for example. Primarily what I do now is DevOps, which is a poorly defined role even in software engineering. It comes from developer operations, and generally means improving how developers operate or develop, particularly in the context of quality and efficiency. Usually it does this by improving workflows, creating tools, and automating tasks. What I want to talk about today is the overlap of all three of those, and one of the few things nearly everyone considers to be part of DevOps, automated build and deployment systems. As a game developer, if you don't have automated builds, you need them. It's a small investment that will save you enormous amounts of time, and if you do it right, will simultaneously make the end result better. You'll sometimes see automated build systems described as CI-CD systems, which stands for continuous integration and continuous deployment. Though, again, sometimes people use these terms to mean slightly different things, or treat CI and CD as the same thing. For our purposes, you can think of them this way. Continuous integration usually boils down to automated builds and testing it's continuously making sure that your game is meeting the quality standards you have set, and usually in as automated a fashion as possible. Continuous deployment is pushing these automated builds out to depots from which they can be used. This can range from a downloadable on your repo's website to a build on Steam. The key concept here is that you want to reduce human involvement as much as possible, since the goal is to save time and improve consistency. Humans are terribly inconsistent, and a human's personal computer tends to inherit a lot of that personal uniqueness. Neither of these are good qualities when we want to make a build of our game. Here I want to provide a little background on how this has worked in the past, and then a quick aside on tools that will be used to support our automated builds. Going back in time, one of the earliest bits of advice was to reduce your build process down to a single button. The philosophy being to reduce the involvement of any humans who were likely to missteps or make mistakes along the way. I've heard this referred to generally as build as a button. Most game engines do this for you now, so younger developers probably never needed to think about it. Usually you just set up your configuration once, and then you can make the build by pressing some variant of go. But there's a catch. Often this go button exists on your computer, as might the config. The solution for this, in the early days, was to dedicate a computer to building the game. The build machine would usually do nothing but make builds. This was the authoritative source of all builds for your game. However, getting code to your build machine was still a manual process. Before version control was common, you generally delivered it via sneaker net. That is, floppy disks carried from one computer to another, and then had to merge all of the code together. There's a lot of interesting history about how this was done, and I love talking about it, but for now, let's just say that sounds painful and be glad we have much better methods available to us now. Nowadays, we have version control. I'm sure you are using version control of some kind for your game. If you aren't, then you probably know you should be. And if you didn't know you should be, then I'm here, letting you know now, you really, really should be. Working without version control is like trying to make the whole game without actually saving your work. These days, I think the most popular version control system is Git, especially amongst small independent studios. Git is everywhere, and we have multiple options for free hosting for our Git repositories. Each of these provides some form of additional tools, but... Mostly, it's the same tools in different flavors, so don't stress about picking. I prefer GitLab, but GitHub is probably the more common, and Bitbucket integrates with other Atlassian things. Pick your poison. In terms of Git clients, however, I always recommend Sourcetree. If you need a client, grab that. If you don't know what Git is, then I'll clarify that Sourcetree is not Git, it's a user interface for Git, and you should definitely use it. One common alternative is GitHub for Windows but GitHub for Windows is too opinionated for me. It tries to make things too easy, to the point of making Git no better than historical version control systems. Sourcetree is better, because it will make you consider things when you need to, rather than try to hide the fact the problem existed. Then, if you're like me, and can make Git dance using the command line interface, Sourcetree will still save you time and help you see things at a glance. For the record, no, I don't get anything from Sourcetree or Atlassian, I've just helped enough people with Git over the years that getting people to use a proper Git client saves me a lot of time and headache. Please use a Git client. Okay, so we've got our builds down to a single button, and builds come from a dedicated machine. We use modern version control to keep everything in sync, so builds coming out of the machine have all the current features for the build. This is a good start, however, kicking off that build is still manual. Someone has to push that button. Furthermore, now that we're using Git, we can make branches of our code, which translates to multiple versions of the game. Well, we'd like to have tests run on those branches. Once again, technology has significantly improved, and we can use the cloud, that magical nebulous name for other people's computers. We can also avoid inheriting any stray uniqueness, from those computers by using virtual instances. Here enters the automated workflow specifications we've been looking forward to. On GitLab and Bitbucket, they're called pipelines. On GitHub, they're workflows. They all have slightly different ways of specifying what should happen, but it largely boils down to the same concepts. We specify a series of jobs that depend on other jobs that get kicked off under certain conditions. For example, whenever someone pushes the repo, we want to run automated tests on the code. That would be one job. If they pushed to the main development branch, then we also make a build and put it on the developer branch of Steam. That's two more jobs. We can have any number of jobs and they can do basically anything we want them to. Common tasks include code lending, unit tests, builds of various kinds and deployment of those builds to every distribution platform under the sun. And yes, You can make more than one build if you want. Separate developer builds and release builds? Maybe you have a dedicated server application? Maybe you still want to make a 32-bit executable? More likely you just want to make builds for Windows, Mac, Linux, PlayStation, Xbox, Switch, and the Playdate. The best part is those can all happen at the same time. Suddenly, our dedicated build machine got replaced by a dynamic number of build machines. So this is obviously better, and with these all happening on other people's machines, our computers are free to keep working on the game, see XKCD303. Plus, these builds always happen the same way, can get tested automatically, and are definitely all the same version of the code, and only the code that's in the repo. No more, wait, why is my test code in production, or Miko, why is the start button your face? To top all this off, we automatically run tests through these jobs. I've already mentioned linting, which is just making sure your code is formatted according to your internal rules, and unit tests, which are small methods that test small parts of your code in isolation. Linting helps keep the code clean, and sometimes can help prevent bugs via typo. Unit tests help make sure the underlying code is working well, and can help prevent bugs created from false assumptions. Both of these can be run as jobs. Integration testing is often the catch-all name for tests that aren't unit that is, tests that don't work in isolation. Technically, it means testing multiple modules together, but in practice, it can mean taking screenshots of your game and making sure they match the last screenshot from the previous build. It really comes down to what you want to test. Running integration tests is often harder, though. Some integration tests still look like unit tests, they just cover more code at once, so these can be done the same way, and people often lump them in with the unit tests some integration tests need to run the game itself though so your game must be built and running doing that as a job is harder at least it can be depending on your game making a screenshot of your game isn't exactly trivial on a virtual machine with no gpu so our cloud runners can't really do that fortunately there's other alternatives one is to bring back our dedicated build machine and put that back in the mix and have it run very specific jobs in this case we may not actually want it to make any builds but we can have it download and run all of the builds made by the Cloud Runners. We can actually have several machines for this if we wish and have the budget for it. That route actually allows us to test lower-end hardware, which can be very valuable for testing the target minimum requirements of the game. Some types of games can even be run in the cloud, though this depends a lot on your game. Provisioning dedicated hardware via third parties is also an option. Now the quote-unquote bad news. Setting this up isn't exactly a walk in the park. The pipeline specifications can get pretty messy. It can take a few days to figure out how to get even one build out of it. And doing it wrong can actually result in your builds taking longer than they should. But this isn't terrible news, since there's people like me out there who legitimately enjoy doing this. And I don't mean like, yeah, I can do it. I mean like, please let me do this. I call dibs. Kind of enjoy doing it. I actually discovered this during my first games industry job. I wanted to do these things, and they were very happy to let me do them, which surprised me. But they gave it all to me, and I was happy, so worked out well for everyone. On top of this, there's also folks who, like me, do this a lot, which means we have solutions lying around we can just apply, rather than having to figure it all out from scratch. That tends to save a lot of time. To conclude, if you found this exciting and really want to go learn how to do it, I encourage you to do that. Drop me a line and we can chat about pipelines and build systems and game development history until dawn. If your reaction was more along the lines of, man, that sounds super useful, but I am not in the mood to do it, drop me a line and we can chat about pipelines and build systems for a significantly shorter period of time, and I will make you a custom one that specifically serves your needs. Or you might know a gal, in which case, drop her a line and have her make you the custom CI-CD framework. I shouldn't get all the fun. Thanks again to Zach for having me. Thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope you found this interesting and useful. Have a great day.
0: And there you have it. A talk about DevOps from our guest, X-Comp Wiz. I think there was a lot of good nuggets of information there on both the side of people who are highly into and knowledgeable about the technical side of things. And maybe you're an art-focused game dev who didn't even know what the term DevOps meant uh, before today. I think there was good information for everyone. I remember a time when that was me. I didn't use any version control. I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> so yeah, if that's you now, the perfect person to send a tweet to and maybe ask about you know the basics, I think would be XcompWiz. You can find him on Twitter at XcompWiz. I'll leave a link to his Twitter in the show notes. And I know in our community, there's a lot of Minecraft fans. So yeah, you definitely should go check out the mod Mistcraft. I'll leave a relevant link to that in the show notes as well. If you'd like to get a hold of me, I'm also on Twitter at underscore Zachavelli underscore. And I'm active on our community Discord pretty much every single day. So come stop by there and say hi. With that, I'm going to end the show. I'll see you guys on the next episode of the Game Dev Field Guide.